There's a poet by the name of Langston Hughes. He lived in the first part of the 20th century, and he pioneered a form of poetry called jazz poetry, and many people have been moved by the things that he has written and said. And this last week I came across a fascinating poem that resonated with me. And the title of the poem was Tired. And this is how it goes. I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. That opening line is a powerful lament. It captures for us this sense of place that we sometimes find ourselves, a place of longing, of waiting for things to be different, for the world to change. And it seems the more we wait and the more we long for it to do so, it just stays kind of stuck in the place that it finds itself. These words to me are powerful. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Langston Hughes invites us into this element of of waiting and of longing. But not only that, he invites us to help diagnose what's going on. He invites us to take a knife, to cut the world in two, and see what worms are eating at the rind. That's, in essence, what Advent calls us to. It calls us to a moment of entering into waiting and of longing, just like the people of old waited and longed for the Messiah to arrive, and to not hold back from an accurate diagnosis of what's wrong with this world. If we're waiting for the world world to become good and beautiful and kind, it seems like we experience much of the world as evil, as ugly, as unkind, maybe even cruel. And I think the best of the Christmas songs capture this moment of longing, this this attitude of waiting for things to be different. Did you notice what we sung just a few moments ago? Oh, come, thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. What would this world be like if we could bid envy, strife, and quarrels to cease? Wouldn't that make the world just a little bit more towards that direction of being good and beautiful and kind? The scriptures tell us that there is a new world coming, one that is good and beautiful and kind, and it is called the kingdom of God. This is the theme of Jesus' ministry. It was something that he literally could not stop talking about. You open the Gospels at almost any place, and you find Jesus talking about this coming future, this coming of a world which is good and beautiful and kind. And what's interesting is that before Jesus arrived on the scene, poets who had a knack with words like Langston Hughes did, poured out their hearts in lament, in waiting and longing for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. And so today I'm going to invite you to join me as we reflect on the psalm that was just written, Psalm 10. And we're going to simply borrow that phrase from Langston Hughes to title our study today, Waiting for the World to Become Good and Beautiful and Kind.
And as we get ready to open up this text and look at it in some detail, let's pause for a moment and pray to the Lord and ask him to teach us and to encourage us this day. Lord, as we hear these words from Langston Hughes about a longing and a waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind, we feel and we sense the fatigue and the exhaustion of waiting for that day. And as we hear his words, and as we look at what you've inspired in Holy Scripture, would you meet us this day? You know so many of us are tired and exhausted. There is a fatigue from living in this world that weighs heavily on so many of us. The burden of it feels almost too difficult to bear sometimes. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us in this moment to enter into lament, and enter into this time of waiting and longing, as the people of old did, waiting for the Messiah to arrive. As we look back on the time of Jesus and the things he taught about the kingdom, and now find ourselves waiting for his second coming, would you encourage our hearts today and help us to lament so that our energies and our focus might be directed to you, the God of salvation, the one who will come one day and set all things to new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you notice how this psalm opened up? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Let me ask you a question. How does that feel to you? Does that feel a bit edgy? A bit raw? Maybe even irreverent or blasphemous? If you were to feel that way, I, I would say I, I identify with that. Even if these words enter my mind, I don't think I have the courage to say them out loud. I've tried the latter part of my life to live by this maxim. Just because a thought enters your head doesn't mean it needs to leave your mouth. <laughs> I found the more that I live by that, the better I keep myself out of trouble. But as I hear these opening words of the psalmist, it makes me wonder. Should he have opened his mouth this way? Just because it entered his mind, did he need to say what he said? And what I want to do this morning is to encourage you to embrace words like this. Let me just back up and read that again. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? The psalmist is asking, in essence, Lord, why are you on the sidelines? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Don't you see what's going on here? The scriptures are, are filled with these kind of laments, these kind of prayers, especially in the book of Psalms. Psalm 13 asks the question, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow all day long? How about Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Or how about Psalm 44? Awake! Why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? 
For our soul is bowed down to the dust, and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Can you sense the the edginess of these prayers? The rawness that these poets find themselves as they look at the world, as they look at the trouble that they have in their life? They're pleading with God to wake up, to get off the sidelines, to come and do something about it. And in praying these kinds of prayers, they are using what Michael Card has called the lost language of lament. It asks questions like, God, where are you? Or, God, if you love me, then why? Have you ever prayed prayers like this? I know that you've thought them. It's impossible to live into this world and see the kind of things that we see, even things we've seen on the TV this last week and in our news feeds, without asking the question, God, where are you? What is going on? If you love us, then why do these kind of things happen in our world? The voice of lament seeks to have what one commentator called a difficult conversation with the king of the universe. It's to bring oneself in in all our our rawness, in all honesty, and to say to God what's really on our mind. It's to cease pretending and trying to put a happy face on things and to present ourselves with our real questions before our real God. I think I've shared with you before this quote from The Justice Calling. It's a book about human trafficking by Bethany Hong and Kristen Johnson. And it's, it's a brilliant book, and I commend it in many ways. But they write this, woven throughout scripture is an unguarded type of prayer known as lament. To lament is to ask why and why not, as well as what are you doing, God, and where are you? To lament is to pour out our hearts, holding nothing back. It is to pray without trying to be more full of faith than we actually are. It's to maybe ask the question that was put to Jesus by Martha. Lord, don't you care? And for the record, my friends, as H.B. Charles has said, there is nothing spiritual about acting as if life does not hurt when life does hurt. And I think what these psalms of lament invite you and me to do is to enter into that longing for things to be different to voice the frustration we have for waiting for the new world to come. It's to come and ask God, God, aren't you tired waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind? The psalmist continues in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. Here he looks around in the world and he sees those with power going after those with no power, exploiting them, oppressing them. And he says, let them be caught in their own schemes. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. It's like in Psalm 73 where the psalmist looks out and he sees wickedness uh, prospering and he says, Lord, I almost lost my faith over it. Why do these things happen? Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This doesn't make sense to the psalmist. The one who wants to live before God, he looks and he sees those who, who hate God, who say there is no God, 
acting as if there's no God, as if there's no one to hold them account. Verse 5, he says, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. For all his foes, uh, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. It says, in essence, Lord, whatever you're doing up there on high, the wicked don't see it. And therefore, he puffs at all his foes. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Not only are they taking advantage of other people and harming them and oppressing others, they have this arrogance about them that says they're going to meet with no adversity. They're not going to get caught. Things are going to be great. Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He looks at these people in his world that seem to be getting away with things. Not only are they doing it, they're boasting about it. Their mouths are filled with cursing and reviling of others. Under his tongue just sports forth this fountain of mischief and and iniquity. Verse 8, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch the helpless. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. He has the audacity to, to say, God, don't you see what's going on here? These people are waiting in ambush for the most vulnerable people. They're sitting nets for them. They're setting traps for them. And they're getting caught in it. Don't you see this, God? Verse 10, the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. My friends, does this resonate with you? When you see things going on in this world, maybe in your workplace, in our city around this nation, Doesn't it seem like sometimes wickedness just prospers? That oftentimes people can commit crimes and get away with it. Sure, some get caught here and there, but it sure seems a lot of them don't. And why do we have to see another report of another school shooting? It just breaks our heart. Lord, don't you see this? Here's a key thought. If lament is having a difficult conversation with God, it is also a deep struggle in which our faith is seeking understanding. It's a struggle in which our faith is seeking understanding. If God is holy, and if God is just, and if he's loving, then why hasn't he done something about it? How do we hold these two things in tension? That book, Justice Calling, once again, is helpful. The authors write, Lament is a prayer that honors the honesty of pain and anger while also honoring the truth that God is the one who reigns and whose hesed, that is his covenant love, never fails. Lament holds in tension all the suffering that seems to make no sense with a determination to believe that God is just. Lament draws us to God when we are tempted to turn away. Lament enables us to keep moving forward with perseverance. It is a way to remain deeply connected to God who loves us and loves justice, even when injustice makes us ask the hardest questions of God. Prayers and lament, my friends, 
are avenues in which we can actually draw near to this God who is confusing, who at times doesn't make sense. It's not a running away from God. It's a presenting ourselves before God, asking him to help us make sense of his love and his justice with what we see going on in this world. So here's another key thought. Raising the voice of lament is a biblical form of protest before God about the way things are because it assumes that God cares. If we care, certainly God must care as well. Why else would we bring prayers of protest before him? After all, as the psalm says in Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. I don't know about you, but that's an incredibly comforting verse. If when you look at our world and you see things that just cause indignation in you, it's comforting to know that the scriptures tell us that God feels indignation every day. My friends, you and I see just a snippet of what goes on in this world. God who is all-knowing and all-seeing, he sees it all. And maybe that's why the psalmist says in verse 12, Arise, O Lord. Oh God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. He's calling God to action, to arise, to come up off his throne and do something about what's going on. Verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and stay in his heart? He will not call, uh, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The arm here is a symbol of a person's power. Break the power, he says, of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. And then the verse, verse 16, the conviction behind all of this. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his, from his land. The conviction that God is king, that he is sovereign, propels him to come before him and ask him to act, to ask him to move, to do something, to make this world good and beautiful and kind. So here's another key thought. When we lament, we are in essence praying a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For us to pray a prayer like this that Jesus taught us to pray is to see that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That it is way too evil, way too ugly, and so unkind. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the heartbeat behind lament. It is the invitation. It is the challenge for God to come. And to bring healing. So the earth is the Lord's. And he is king forever and ever. That has to be true. If we are to come before this God. With our complaints. With our laments. With our desires. With our waiting. With our longing for things to be different. Verse 10. O Lord you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. 
This one who is king over the earth forever and ever hears the desire of the afflicted. That's the conviction of the psalmist, that he will strengthen their heart, that he will incline his ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed with the end that man who is of the earth, the earth that belongs to the Lord, may strike terror no more. So let me summarize our study so far by saying this. Lament is the defiant hope that assumes God cares about human suffering and misery just like we do. Or maybe I should say even more than we do. But when we see it and we care about it, we can have the conviction and know that God himself cares about it too, even if we don't understand why he's allowing things to go on as they are right now. So I've got two points of application for us, my friends. The first one is this. Let's become fluent in this lost language of lament. If the Psalms contain these words for us, then let's use them. Let's become fluent in learning how to use these kind of prayers. Because, my friends, I'm convinced that the older we become, And the more we experience in this world, and the more that comes before our eyes that we wish that we could see undone, if you don't have an outlet for lament to the Lord, you will grow cynical and jaded and bitter. You will begin to shut down as a person. If you don't have this outlet, if you don't know this lost language of lament to come before God, your faith will shrivel. One person said that the Psalms help us with the language of lament by teaching us to say these kind of things. Help me. I don't know. I am afraid. I am alone. I am angry. I am sorrowful. Do you hear me? Why is this happening? How long, O Lord? My friends, God has inspired these psalms and he has placed them in the middle of the scriptures for you and I to use. God isn't offended when we come to him with our honest questions, with the struggles that we have to make sense of of his sovereignty and of his care and of his love and his justice with the way that things are right now. And so he gives us vocabulary. He gives us words to use to write, to compose, and even to sing. How long, O Lord, until the world becomes good and beautiful and kind? Jesus promised that. How long, O Lord? So that's the first point of application. Let's learn this lost language of lament. Let's become fluent in it. Let me challenge you this week to take up these kind of prayers when you see things in this world that drive you crazy. Here's a second point. Let's learn to connect the dots between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ and the heart of God. Let's learn to connect the dots between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ with the very heart of God. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with the season of Advent, these prayers of lament? And in a word, I would say everything. It is to enter into longing and waiting 
and hoping and praying for that day to come when God will set everything to right. We're told in the Gospels these words, All these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the titles of Jesus is God with us. We sung a couple weeks ago the hymn, He comes, He came to earth to taste our sorrow. God with us. And so my friends, in thinking about lament and to think deeply about it and to enter into these moments of longing and waiting is not only to come before the Lord, but also to set the story of the gospel before us. That God is not just out there on the sidelines, but rather he's come near to us in the person of Christ. Greg Gansel, a philosopher, in this book called God and Evil has a chapter in which he says this. Christianity is the story of God entering the world and paying the highest price to deal with the root of evil. It is the story of God becoming human in Jesus and taking on himself the results of human sin. We have to hold this in our minds, even as we lament, to remind ourselves of the gospel, that God has come near to us in the person of Christ, not simply to taste our sorrow, but to take our sorrow and a sin upon himself. Timothy Keller has this wonderful book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Many of you know I quote Keller probably almost every week. I found out this last week that he announced that he has stage four pancreatic cancer. So let's uh, remember him in our prayers. But in this book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he said these very insightful words. We turned from God, but God did not abandon us. Only Christianity, of all the world's major religions, teaches that God came to earth in Jesus Christ and became subject to suffering and death himself. See what this means? Yes, we do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or why it is so random. But now, at least, we know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. He can, it cannot be that he does not care. He is so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of human suffering, I'm sorry, of suffering himself. He understands us. He has been there. He assures us that he has a plan to eventually wipe away every tear. Someone might say, but that's only half the answer to the question. Why? Yes, but it is the half that we need. Christmas tells us that God came near to us in the person of Jesus, and he took our suffering and our sin upon himself. That's why Philip Yancey in his book, Where is God When It Hurts, said, any discussion of how pain and suffering fit into God's schemes ultimately leads back to the cross. And I want to say it leads back to the cross, but not simply to the cross, but through the cross and to the resurrection. Because when God raised Jesus from the dead, he gave us a glimpse in miniature of what he plans to do one day for this entire universe, to raise it from its death and decay. And this is what J.R.R. Tolkien called a eucatastrophe. You know that phrase, catastrophe. Catastrophe is when something goes terribly wrong, right? J.R.R. Tolkien said a eucatastrophe is when something goes incredibly right. And so you know his story in Lord of the Rings where Frodo was this 
hobbit who was just so unassuming but took upon himself the burden to take this ring of power back to the land of Mordor where it was forged and to cast it back into the fire so it can be ultimately destroyed, this ring that controlled the land with evil. And as he made his way to Mount Doom and sought to cast that ring into the fire, there was this creature, Golem, who had been obsessed with this ring. It was his precious, and he had been tracking the hobbits and even leading them at one point. And he jumps out, and he grabs the ring from Frodo. And in his delight, he finally has his precious. But in this great eucatastrophe that happens, he falls into the fires himself, and so the ring is destroyed. That was a eucatastrophe, where everything that seems to have gone wrong finally makes a turn to go right. And Tolkien said that the incarnation, that is God taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus, is the eucatastrophe of human history. That longing that we have had for someone to come to tell us about the kingdom was met initially in the person of Jesus. That was the first eucatastrophe. And if the incarnation is the eucatastrophe of human history, the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation of Jesus. And my friends, there is one more eucatastrophe to come. What Jesus called the renewal of all things. When the world becomes good and beautiful and kind. And so my friends, let us learn that lost language of lament. And let us learn how to connect the dots between the first coming of Jesus and that second coming of Jesus with the heart of God. That heart that determined to send the Lord Jesus Christ to take the human suffering and sin upon himself so that one day he could put it into evil without putting it into us. And let's look forward to that day and enter into longing and waiting as long as it is called today for that great eucatastrophe free to come when he does set everything to right. My friends, I say to that, amen. Come, Lord Jesus.